I don't know about you, but I just about started crying singing that song, King Forevermore, and that last verse. Do you long for that day? Wow, when justice rolls and faith is sight, when we are with Him delivered from our present struggles and enjoying the far, far greater glory that is ahead of us. Sometimes it can seem a long way away, and sometimes it can seem really, really hard. How on earth can we ever get there? Actually lends itself to a discussion of Zechariah. We come to the second to last in our study of the Minor Prophets, Several of you commented this morning along the lines of, we're going to have to be here all day if we're going to get through Zechariah. I don't know if you read it this week, but I can tell you we're not even going to try. Uh, We have tried throughout this series to really cover the book each week. Uh, There is simply no way. Uh, The book of Zechariah is just filled the first section with these incredibly vivid visions, and each one has its own particular import and significance. Then there's a little section there with dealing with some uh, specific issues, and then another six chapters of oracles mainly dealing with the end times. We could actually probably spend... 16 weeks in Zechariah, and we're not going to try and do that. Um, We will summarize, and it's a great message of hope. Uh, To the people in the situation in which Judah was in his days, Zechariah is a message that God will bless and will provide and will prosper his people. It's a message of encouragement and promise and hope in dark times in which they face a seemingly insurmountable task with extreme opposition and severely limited resources. And I feel sometimes in life like we face insurmountable tasks. We can go through the various situations as far as work or finances or who knows what else, but even narrowing down into the spiritual realm, we face insurmountable tasks. Some of us contemplate what it is like to raise our children in today's world in which it seems like just about every aspect of culture is stacked against us, in which it seems like uh, daily there is constant bombardment with exactly the wrong messages, in, in a time in which most people think that their kids probably, for the first generation that I know of, in which most people think that their kids probably won't have it better off than they will. Uh, it's intimidating. It's, it's impossible in this world to raise our children. If we think about the winning 
the, the, the saving of souls that are in chains of darkness around us and facing an eternity without Jesus Christ. The message itself is hard enough, but once again, it feels like culture and history and everything is setting itself up against the progress of the kingdom of God, against the advance of the gospel, not only around the world, but even in our very own neighborhoods. How is it that even one soul can be saved uh, in these present circumstances? Sometimes it feels like we have faced an insurmountable task as a church over this last year. Uh, we have had tragedy upon tragedy uh, in the midst, again, of the various circumstances in our culture that set themselves up against us. How can the church survive? Yes, Jesus says that the gates of hell won't prevail against it, but how is that even possible? How can we overcome sin in our own lives? that so easily besets us, that causes us to stumble, that confronts us day after day? How can we experience progress in our own souls? These are insurmountable tasks. These are mountains that face us. And looking at them, we ought to despair. We ought to tremble. But the message of Zechariah to the people in general and to two specific leaders is that God can fit you and empower you for the task ahead. God can and will fit and empower you for the task ahead. So what we're going to do is narrow Zechariah down to two chapters. It's in that first section with the visions. There are eight visions. You could look at these visions in Zechariah like concentric circles. Uh, the technical term is that it's a chiastic structure. It means that the first and the eighth visions are related in the second and the seventh and the third and the sixth. And then right in the middle you have the fourth and the fifth vision, which allow us to focus on the, 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 the central message of that section of the book of Zechariah. The fourth vision is about Joshua, the high priest. The fifth vision about Zerubbabel, the governor. Two men facing impossible tasks who are fit and empowered by the Lord for what is ahead of them. So let's look first at Joshua, Joshua the high priest in Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 3. Let me read as you read along. Then he, this is the angel who was showing Zechariah the visions, then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning snick, stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua 
was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. Here you have Joshua, who is high priest over the people in the land of Judah after they had returned from captivity. Pastor Danny did a great job last week laying before us the historical situation of Haggai. Haggai and Zechariah wrote at the exact same time, addressing the exact same situation. And so here you have the people who have returned from exile in Babylon. They're living in the land of Judah. They are living in Jerusalem. And Joshua's task is to bring spiritual restoration among a people that has forgotten the Lord, among a people that has been living in moral decay, among a people that even before the exile had descended into idolatry and unfaithfulness towards the Lord, who were characterized by corruption and injustice and abuses and sin, and then gone into exile, spent decades, two generations among a heathen people totally separated from the life of the temple and the instruction that would be provided by the priesthood, now having returned to a place that was totally broken down. And they've actually been living there for years without a temple as a focus of worship. They've been living there for years, actually continuing in many of the same sins. If you read through Ezra, Nehemiah, and also uh, Malachi, you can read about the sins, not of the past, but of the present, in post-exilic Judah. Joshua is supposed to bring about restoration, spiritual life in a people caught in moral decay, spiritual ignorance, and sin. And as the high priest, he represents that people. And so we read in these verses about the filthy clothing that he is wearing as he carries on the ministry. When these verses say that the high priest is standing before the Lord, that is a phrase that describes a high priest carrying on the ministry of the priesthood in the Lord's presence. And Exodus chapter 28 describes for us in great detail the pure clothing and all of the accoutrements that the priest is supposed to have as he stands before the Lord. And here you have Joshua standing before the Lord with the very worst kind of filth. We don't really speak the words from the pulpit and don't translate them in the Bible, but you get the idea of the very worst filth you can imagine covering the clothing of the high priest who is supposed to be holy before the Lord. And it represents not only the sin of the people, but it represents his own sin. And as he stands before the Lord, the accuser is there. Isn't he always there? The accuser is right there beside Joshua. And he's pointing at him. He's saying, look at him. He's filthy. He's disgusting. He doesn't deserve to be before you. 
This is the condition and the situation in which Joshua finds himself. And the solution is so beautiful. He himself knows he can't, he doesn't have a defense. He stands there in silence, recognizing his guilt, his unfitness for the task that is set before him. He knows he can't do anything for himself, and the Lord steps into his defense, rebuking the accuser and then directing a remarkable change. Let's look at the following verses. Really, this is all we need for a communion Sunday. Look at verses 4 and 5. The angel, this is the angel of the Lord, by the way, little side thing, not even in the outline. So many times in the Old Testament when you read about the angel of the Lord, it is the Lord himself. This is the Lord Jesus Christ defending Joshua. Take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to Joshua, See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. Then I, Zechariah, said, Put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The solution when Joshua can't do anything for himself is that the Lord does everything that is necessary, removing those filthy, sin-stained robes and arraying him in pure garments of worthiness. And then the crowning moment is this turban. If you read about the turban, back in Exodus, it went around the head of the high priest and had a little placard on it, that said, holy before the Lord. Joshua is made to be holy before the Lord because of the clothing that is provided for him. And of course, you know where this is going. Joshua is a representative of who we are. And this chapter of Zechariah prefigures for us what the Lord Jesus can do for every one of us. If you're wondering about the outline, we actually only have two points today. The first point is about Joshua the high priest, and the counterpoint is how Jesus is prefigured in what we see here in the story of Joshua. Look at verse 8 that helps us to know that this is exactly what the Holy Spirit intends in Zechariah chapter 3. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. I'm going to bring my servant the branch The next verses give us three titles that we know from the book of Isaiah as well as from the Psalms apply exclusively to Jesus. The servant, who is the anointed one. The branch, 
who arises from the cut-off stump of the, of the line of King David, and then the stone, the cornerstone of the temple, the cornerstone of our faith, Jesus Christ, who is the stone that was rejected and then became the capstone. We see it right here. This isn't just about Joshua. This is about Jesus. And this is about everything that Jesus can do for every one of us. Because our condition looks just like Joshua's condition. You don't have to read many pages of Scripture. You can pick just about any book of the Bible and see the moral decrepitude in which we live, the total depravity of our nature, the fact that every inclination of our hearts is against God. And even when we think we have a good inclination of our hearts, it is then towards us and not towards Him. Of course, the classic chapter would be Romans chapter 3, where the Apostle Paul describes, again, drawing from the pages of Scriptures that there is no one righteous, not even one. No one seeks God. Everyone together has become worthless. The, the poison of our words, the, the, the vileness of our thoughts, our actions towards each other, they all point to the fact that we have lifted ourselves above God and therefore have together become unworthy of His glorious presence. Now there are probably, in fact, I know, because we can talk with them all the time, plenty of people who think, yeah, but that's really not me. I'm actually a pretty good person. And instead of listing that vileness that I have described, we can list the good intentions and our generosity and the ways that we have helped other people. That is described for us in Scripture as self-righteousness. And here's what Isaiah has to say about our self-righteousness. It is like filthy rags. It's the image that Zechariah is referring to. It's that same absolute filth. Our acts of righteousness, the good things that we think we're doing, if we list on our spreadsheet of the bad things I've done and the good things I've done. Isaiah takes the list of the good things that I've done and says, that's the filthy rags. Those don't make me worthy of being in God's presence. Those are simply a continuation of the list of everything that separates me from God. Remember, Jesus' harshest words weren't for the serial adulterers and the greedy and the betraying tax collectors. Jesus' harshest words were for the self-righteous Pharisees and leaders of the people who thought that they deserved a standing before God. 
And in that condition, we find ourselves in great need. We find ourselves in a situation in which we are unable to help ourselves or anyone else. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says we're dead in our transgressions and sins. Unfit to do anything to help ourselves or anyone else. A dead body can't get up and walk, never mind help somebody else. But then this is where the amazing good news, this is where God's merciful provision comes in. This is where we come to the cross this morning. The great exchange that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. I don't know what your particular brand of filth is this morning. I can imagine for some it's financial dealings that we hope never actually come to light. For others it might be the kind of addiction that looks really good in the office and at home, but it's still addiction. Whether the pills come from the street or the pharmacy, or whether the addiction is actually to our own pleasure or our own pride or our progress in life. The numbers tell us that there are way too many in this room who are addicted to pornography and other kinds of moral decline. Maybe it's an addiction to self-righteousness. Always got to look good. Make sure everybody knows I'm worthy. Can you believe, can you believe that the spotless Lamb of God said, give me your filth? That's what happened on the cross. Just Take that second to look in your own heart and, and the very worst thing, the thing that you hope you don't remember anymore. Jesus said, I'll take that. The New Testament describes what took place on the cross as a change of clothing. Jesus said, take off those filthy garments and put them on my shoulders. And when he went to the cross, he went there bearing that filth. And he took upon himself the punishment that we deserve. And it didn't just stop there. For those who believe in him, there's not only expiation, that's removal of that sin, there is then clothing in his righteousness. He took off his pure and holy raiment and wrapped it around us. He said, here's my holiness, Tom. Be clothed in it. 
You can be in God's presence. You can stand before him clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's how we can be fit for the insurmountable task of holiness before God who is holy, holy, holy. And so Isaiah just rejoices. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. Charles Spurgeon at this point in Zechariah said, if Satan wants to accuse us, any page of our history, any hour of our day will furnish him with the material for his charge. But Jesus is ready to step in and drive the accuser away and cleanse us of every spot of unrighteousness and fit us for the kingdom of God. And then there's more. The second vision is a vision that affects Zerubbabel, and he is the governor. So Joshua is the high priest responsible for restoration of spiritual life. Zerubbabel is the governor, who, by the way, is in the line of David, but in this particular moment of history, he's not a king. Darius is king. Zerubbabel's just kind of a puppet governor who's supposed to make sure that everything stays in order in the land of Judah. And he has come to a country and a city that is in absolute devastation. And his monumental task is to rebuild. Rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls. And all he has is a literal mountain of rubble. He has enemies on every side. This is the situation in which he finds himself. Nations around who oppose any sort of restoration. In fact, there's even a lawsuit going on. Pastor Danny talked about it last week, saying, hey, you're not supposed to be doing this, appealing to Darius. Darius looks in the record and says, no, no, that work should continue on. Point is, opposition from outside, opposition from within. The people have been caught in lethargy, overwhelmed by the impossibility of the task and the lack of resources. And Zerubbabel is somehow supposed to accomplish the rebuilding of this temple and this city. How can he ever do it? Well, the vision gives the answer in a way that's a little bit difficult to understand, but wow, so powerful when you get into it. Let's read chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. The angel who talked with me returned and woke me up like someone awakening from a sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. Now, there's been a lot of research into this lampstand. Naturally, we go to the idea of the menorah, but 
If you dig into it, it's probably actually not describing the menorah, but rather something that is more like a chandelier. So you've got this lampstand that consists of a bowl in the middle, and around the bowl there are seven lamps, and each of the seven lamps has a channel in which a wick is placed. So actually 49 burning wicks, a bowl, seven lamps, seven channels for a wick within each one of those lamps. If you're familiar with Scripture, you know that seven is a really good number. Seven's the number of perfection. Seven times seven is like perfection squared. This is an amazing lamp. It's brilliant. It's like the best lamp you could ever have, but there's a problem with this lamp. Forty-nine wicks are burning, lighting up this room wherever it's placed. Google and I did some time together this week and figured out there might be about five gallons of oil burned every day to keep this lamp going. An impossible resource to be provided. But there's an answer in this vision. You've got two olive trees right next to it connected with the pipe. (laughs) And these olive trees keep providing oil to this impossibly brilliant, beautiful, perfect lamp. And the angel says to Zerubbabel, what do you, to Zechariah, what do you see? I don't know. In fact, Zechariah asked the angel, what is this? What, you don't know what this is? I have no idea what this is. There's all kinds of speculation about what this is. This might be the church, which is the light for the world. This might be Israel, which is a light for the nations. This might be the tree of life. This might be Jesus. Of course, you've got to make sure that the Sunday school answer is in there somewhere. The thing that we've got to do is follow the indications of the Scriptures, there's no answer for what it is. Zechariah wants to know what it is. The angel ignores that question. The point is not what. The point is how. How can this impressive, powerful work, this ministry, be accomplished? Well, it's accomplished by the constant supply of the oil from these trees, and so then the conclusion is drawn. I think I've skipped over the Scriptures we were supposed to read, starting in verse 4. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what they are? No, my Lord, I replied. He said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit says the Lord Almighty. It's not what. There's all kinds of what's. There's all kinds of things that we are supposed to be accomplishing. There's all kinds of insurmountable tasks that we face in our lives. The answer is how. And the how is by the Spirit of the Lord. By the limitless supply of the Holy Spirit. And so the promise is given to Zerubbabel that the ministry will be accomplished. Look at verse 7. What are you, mighty mountain, before Zerubbabel 
you will become level ground. And the promise goes on to say that temple's going to be rebuilt during the days of Zerubbabel because God is able to supply everything that is needed to accomplish the task that he sets before us. And of course, that's not only a message for Zerubbabel. The counterpoint here is that the Holy Spirit, the, the New Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit is prefigured in Zechariah, but it's something for us today. We need impossible resources to accomplish the insurmountable tasks of living for Jesus Christ in this world today. We need holiness. We need wisdom. We need power. And every one of those things is provided for us because Jesus gives the Holy Spirit without measure. Look at John 7, verses 38 through 39. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. The resources aren't meager. The resources aren't barely enough to help us get through today. The resource of the Holy Spirit is a stream of living water that bubbles up and overflows. A perfect provision of everything that is needed. The difference between Zerubbabel's day and our day, and the difference between John's day and our day is that it's not only a promise, but it's fulfilled. John said the Spirit hadn't yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Jesus said, unless I go to the Father, I can't send the Spirit. Jesus ascended to the Father and has sent His Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that all of us who are in Christ Jesus, have received the Holy Spirit. There's no exception. If you are in this room or anywhere else in the world and have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you have the unlimited supply of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you at this moment and every moment. And He is sufficient for all that we need. The Spirit gives us everything we need. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and purposes. Not most, not some. Everything that we need for life and godliness is provided for us by the Holy Spirit. 
the command that is given to us in this regard is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. There's a difference between having the Holy Spirit in you as a mark and seal of your salvation. That's what every one of us have, has in Jesus Christ. But daily walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, in submission to Him, this is what we are commanded. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an interesting command because it's passive. Not fill yourself with the Holy Spirit. You can't do that. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. All we can do is place ourselves in the position of submission to God. He is the one who does the filling. And as we come before Him every day, He provides us everything that we need. There's another big difference between what happened in Zerubbabel's day and what happens in our day. We don't have time to go into the whole thing, but if you look at the end of chapter 4, Zerubbabel asks about these trees, and we find out that the trees, the provision is actually, I mean, Zechariah asks, the provision is actually through Zerubbabel and through Joshua. In the Old Testament, the ministry is provided through the priesthood, and through the kingship, through the leadership. Going on in Zechariah to chapter 6, you find out then that Jesus is the fulfillment, bringing together the priesthood and the kingship in himself. And so those layers of authority are removed, and Jesus Christ is the complete fulfillment of all of that. And then every one of us, is part of a royal priesthood. If you are in Christ, you're not looking to some priest or to some leader to give you what you need. If you are in Christ, then through Christ the Holy Spirit is given to you. We are brothers and sisters together on a journey to serve the Lord to bring Him honor and glory. Some of us might be a little ahead on the journey. Some of us might be a little behind, but we're on the same exact road. There's not a hierarchy. There's a royal priesthood of all believers. There's not one person who receives the vision and tells everybody what they're supposed to do. There's brothers and sisters who together pray, who together seek the Lord through whom the Holy Spirit gives guidance to His church. There's not a level of people who carry out the ministry and the rest of us just kind of hope that maybe we can do something useful someday. There's a Holy Spirit given to every single person so that together we carry on the work of the ministry for the glory of God. And as we seek to carry out that work, it is only, again, because we have been made fit by Jesus and have been empowered by the Holy Spirit. So how can we accomplish mission impossible? All those things that we talked about at the beginning. Following Jesus 
in our day. First of all, seek the cleansing in Jesus Christ. His robes of righteousness are available for us today. Second, daily submit to the Holy Spirit. This is actually a daily practice, part of our spiritual disciplines, part of our prayer life. Holy Spirit, control my life today. Confessing the other things to which we give our loyalty and that we allow to control over us and asking him to fill and to bear his fruit in us. And so prayer, of course, is an essential part of that. Confessing, asking, seeking his fruit, seeking his fullness, and then finally, taking it one day at a time. It's so amazing that in that same passage where we read, what are you, mighty mountain? You're going to be leveled before Zerubbabel. We also read, do not despise the day of small things. Zerubbabel didn't build the temple in one day. Just set a stone. We don't have to try and accomplish all the big things right now. Rather, ask the Lord, what is it today? What is the small thing that we, Carry Alliance, can do today? What is the small thing that I, decrepit individual, but fit by Jesus and empowered by the Spirit, can do today? Let us not despise the day of small things. Heavenly Father, thank you for the encouragement of these words. One thing we see is how very desperately we need you. Imprint that deeply on our souls. Oh, how we need you. But then we see your glorious and great provision in Jesus Christ. And so, how can we even be bold enough to claim what you have made available? But that's what you tell us we can do. Lord, I pray for anyone who just stands accused. We all should, but some of us haven't got past that. Wrap us in the righteousness of Christ. Fill us with your spirit. Fit us and empower us for everything that you have. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.